It's Wednesday, May 22nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Many more students, especially in affluent areas, are getting extra time to take the SAT. After the big college admissions cheating scandal came to light, there's more scrutiny on the whole process. And a Wall Street Journal analysis shows that there has been an increase in special allowances that give students more time or other accommodations when taking tests. Doug Belkin, higher education reporter for the Wall Street Journal, tells us about the 504 designation. Next, the trial for Nexium sex cult leader Keith Raniere continues in court and testimony is shedding more light on the practices of the group and also what went down when Raniere was arrested. Just before he would engage in group sex with his slaves, federal agents busted in to arrest him and he hid in a walk-in closet. Pilar Melendez, reporter for the Daily Beast, breaks down the latest. Finally, former White House counsel Don McGahn was subpoenaed to appear before the House Judiciary Committee and testify on ways that Trump could have possibly obstructed justice. And all Democrats got was an empty chair. Kyle Cheney, congressional reporter for Politico, joins us for the no-show and increased calls for an impeachment inquiry. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. But in wealthier schools, parents who both have the knowledge and understanding of how the system works and have the resources and the, and the money to pay for this testing, which can run, you know, five or ten grand, are getting their kids tested from private psychologists and bringing the results into the school and saying he needs these accommodations and the school is apt to okay them. Joining us now is Doug Belkin, higher education reporter for The Wall Street Journal. The last time we talked to you, we were talking about the adversity score and the SATs, you had some more reporting now, and uh, this one was pretty interesting. Apparently, a lot of high schools and many more students, especially in affluent areas, are getting extra time to take the SAT. Now, when we were heard about Operation Varsity Blues and this whole scam that was going on by William Rick Singer, some of the scam was that he was getting students to get a special designation. They could get a little bit more time to take their SAT or the ACT, And sometimes they would get it done in another room. And then part of that scheme, he had a special proctor that would help change test scores, all that stuff. But this is increasingly happening in a lot of different high schools where students are getting extra time to take these tests. Tell us a little bit more about this. In 2003, the ACT and SAT uh, College Board and ACT companies decided that they would no longer forward the information to colleges if a student had gotten extra time to take their exam. As a result, the schools didn't know if it was better or worse because they'd gotten this extra time. And that set off a chain reaction. More students began to apply for accommodations in order to get this extra time on the SAT or the ACT. And it's a fairly convoluted process, but essentially you need to have a medical evaluation and a doctor needs to say, well, you know, there's some reason that you you can't concentrate or you have ADHD or you have depression or anxiety and and you need additional time just to sort of get yourself up to par. And as a result, the numbers of kids with these accommodations have risen every year pretty much straight through, but it's risen unevenly. It's, It's happening more dramatically in wealthier high schools than in poorer high schools. So that story takes a look at this phenomenon. Even some of these school administrators don't believe it. So there's a few high schools that you pointed out. Scarsdale High School, north of New York City, 20% of those students are eligible for extra time. Weston High School in Connecticut, 25%. Newton North High School outside of Boston, 33%. And that Newton superintendent said flat out, do I think that more than 30% of our students have a disability? No, but this has been out there now and parents are aware of this way to get their students extra time for the test. I guess 
the baseline is that there's a lot of kids who actually have issues and need these things to get up to the level. Right. There's plenty of reason for this stuff. And part of the reason they're happening more and more is because some folks are availing themselves of them in greater numbers who need them. And there's a lot of estimates out there that there are plenty of kids out there who would benefit and deserve accommodations who don't have them. So that's the sort of starting point. However, this can be exploited by folks who, whose children may not need them, but they know that other kids have them. And getting it to university, elite colleges is hyper-competitive now. So it essentially is a, gives you a competitive edge over uh, other students who may not have it. One of the interesting little tidbits we turned up in this reporting of the story was that one out of six students don't finish the ACT. It's a time test. And if you don't have enough time to finish it, then obviously your score isn't as high. So extra time can be a significant benefit. This is called a 504 designation. How are students and parents going through to get this special designation? I mean, you have to go see a psychologist or something, somebody to say that the student does suffer from, as you said, depression, anxiety, ADHD. A teacher or a counselor inside the school can start the process if they see that a kid is struggling. But in a lot of public schools, there's not enough resources to get every kid tested who folks may be concerned have some sort of deficit. In the wealthier schools, parents who both have the knowledge and understanding of how the system works and have the resources and the, and the money to pay for this testing, which can run you know five or ten grand, are getting their kids tested from private psychologists, neuropsychologists, and bringing the results into the school and saying, you know, this is what this expert says is is going on in my child's head, he needs these accommodations or she needs these accommodations and the school is apt to okay them. The college board approves 94% of these requests when they come in. What is their reaction to all of this? I Obviously, they're saying, you know, this is good for the students that need it and it totally is. The, the students that need this extra help just to level that playing field, that's great. But for the students that might be taking advantage of it, the parents that might be taking advantage of it, how do they respond to that? They said that they're more concerned with the kids who need an accommodation and should have one, and that there's a lot more of them than for the handful of kids who are sort of slipping through the cracks. And up until a couple of years ago, they were going to the schools and spot-checking the documentation of the students who were asking for accommodations. And what was happening, they said, is as the numbers grew and grew, they were unable to keep up. And so there became this backlog, and kids were waiting you know, four, five, and six weeks to find out if their accommodation request was approved. And that was creating a string of problems. So they just decided to stop doing the vast majority of that spot checking and relying on the schools. And, you know, their point is the schools know the students, the schools have the documentation, the schools know the medical folks. So they have a, they're just in a better position to be able to evaluate whether this accommodation is legitimate. These 504 designations are happening in public schools. What about private schools? The privates don't play by the same rules. They don't have these designations. They're not held to the same standards. So they can give somebody an accommodation without going through all of these uh, bureaucratic loops. A lot of these private schools, they're selling an education, but they're also selling access to a good school. And so there's nobody in the loop necessarily that wants to tell these kids that they shouldn't have an accommodation. The parents want their kids to get into good schools. It can be an edge to get accommodation and to help them. So the, the rates from what we could glean from in our reporting tends to be higher than in the public schools. Douglas Belkin, higher education reporter. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. She went running into a walk-in closet. It was pretty astonishing to see her recount this story and Keith just glaring at her across the courtroom, making him sound like the biggest, the biggest wimp in the whole world. Joining us now is Pilar Melendez, reporter at the Daily Beast. We've been following the story of this Nexium sex cult for some time now. 
Pilar, you have been in court for a lot of the major recent proceedings. Right now, the founder of the Nexium cult is, I'll just say cult out loud, but <laughs> alleged cult, let's say, mm-hmm. Keith Ranieri. It's his trial going on right now. He's yeah. being charged with sex trafficking, racketeering conspiracy, child exploitation, child pornography, a lot of stuff. The person yeah. who's testifying right now is Lauren Salzman. She's the daughter of of the co-founder of this group with Keith Ranieri. Her name is Nancy Salzman. Tell us about what she is letting us know, uh, more info on this sex cult. Her third day of testimony, which just speaks to the insurmountable amount of evidence that the prosecution has. She just finished her direct, which is pretty wild. But basically, she went into detail about the moment where Keith Ranieri got arrested, which I've never seen reporting on any of it before. They were all in Mexico. As you may know, Keith Ranieri, at the start of 2018, started going to Mexico. And around November 2017, he went and never came back. So he was in Mexico, and a bunch of his slaves that were associated with the sex cult group, DAW, Federation of Nexium, had gone for a recommitment ceremony to show Keith Ranieri that no matter what, it doesn't matter if the federal agents are after you, we are committed to you, we're committed to DOS, we're going to show that commitment in a recommitment ceremony that will feature group sex, which Lauren Soldman mentioned multiple times in her testimony that she was not comfortable with. It was something that was kind of sprung up on her by another slave, and she felt like she didn't have a choice but to give in because everyone else made it seem like it was her problem and not a problem in itself. Yeah, some of this testimony um, is really yeah. the stuff that movies are made of. So they're there preparing Definitely. for this recommitment ceremony when another slave comes in and yells, the police are here, the police are here. Right. And Lauren Salzman, for as uncomfortable as she was in a lot of stuff, she was still sold on this whole thing. She said her first inclination was to protect Keith. And what was the first thing that he did when the police came knocking? He went running into a walk-in closet. It was pretty astonishing to see her recount this story and Keith just glaring at her across the courtroom, making him sound like the biggest, the biggest wimp in the whole world. Her first instinct was to barricade herself in the master suite with Keith. And his first instinct was to not climb out of the window and try to escape, but to hide in a walk-in closet and make her deal with the federal authorities, who she mentioned had multiple machine guns. Ended up kicking down the door, putting her on the floor, and he just wouldn't come out until she called his name and said that she needed him to come out now. He eventually did. But it's pretty astonishing. Someone who talked about men empowerment and basically enslaved women for over a decade, his first instinct was to have a woman protect him. This whole Nexium group started off as like a self-help group type of thing, and that was the outside face of this. And behind all of this was this weird sex cult, master-slave relationships that Keith Ranieri had with all these women. And it was like a pyramid scheme. I mean, Lauren, some point she said she had about 22 slaves under her. So she was very complicit in a lot of the things that were happening. Tell us a little bit about her involvement and how she got branded when she became involved in the DOS group. Her mother actually brought her into Nexium when she became the co-founder when Lauren was 21 years old. And her relationship with Keith went from being mentor to boyfriend about six years into her progress at Nexium. And when in 2015, when Keith Ranieri began to start talking about this secret society, sorority as he called it, Lauren was one of the first eight women that were inducted into the ceremony. And the way that DOS worked, which is very sneaky, is they were would ask women for collateral to hear this great new organization that's being started up at Nexium. 
They would give them collateral, collateral being a naked photo, a letter saying that they committed a crime, a letter bashing their family, anything that would make have incentive to follow through with whatever they said they were going to do because the consequences of this collateral would be far worse. So then after that would happen, they would tell them the project, the Master Slave Program, which doesn't really make any sense to me now. And I, I think Lauren, when she was explaining it, really understood the inconsistencies of having a Master Slave Women's Organization. Right. But she was one of the first members, so she's technically a first-line slave. And she's a first-line slave with Smallville actress Alison Mack, Ballastar Galactica actress Nikki Klein, and a couple others that are going to be huge factors of this trial. And she got branded. So the branding aspect was more Keith Raniere's way of putting his stamp on DOS without having a forward front face of DOS. He's technically the grandmaster, meaning that he is the number one master. And then from him, he has the first line slaves. And then from them, again, another beautiful pyramid scheme. The psychological component that was going on with all these people. One of Miss Salzman's other tasks was to edit the teachings of Ranieri, kind of like his manifesto, talking about how the best slaves derive the highest pleasure from being their master's ultimate tool. It's just incredible, all the things that were going on. You've been in the court there. You've put eyes on him. What's his reaction throughout this whole process? You know, it's been interesting. I feel like he has been glaring a lot at Lauren Salzman, who with somebody that he had more than a decade long relationship with. You can tell she's very flustered by it. He is flanked by lawyers on both sides, only speaks to them, but has been very open about the fact that he is not happy that Lauren's talking. Pilar Melendez, reporter for The Daily Beast. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. This committee will hear Mr. McGann's testimony even if we have to go to court to secure it. We will not allow the president to prevent the American people from hearing from this witness. We will not allow the president to block congressional subpoenas, putting himself and his allies above the law. Joining us now is Kyle Cheney, congressional reporter at Politico. The House Judiciary Committee Chairman Gerald Nadler gaveled open a Trump-Russia hearing with an empty witness chair for former White House counsel Don McGahn. He was saying that he might be held in contempt for failing to appear in defiance of the committee's subpoena. Everything is going crazy. Democrats are increasing the calls now for impeachment hearings. Let's start off with Don McGahn first. What happened? Why did he not show up? Don McGahn was one of the most important witnesses for special counsel Mueller's investigation of potential obstruction of justice by the president. So Democrats naturally wanted to hear from him and asked for his appearance months ago. When he was slated to appear, he opted not to because the president instructed him not to. Now, he doesn't work for the president anymore, but the president cited some long-standing arguments for why former White House advisors shouldn't be forced to testify in front of Congress. And McGahn said, you know what, I'm going to abide by that. So Jared Nadler, he has an empty chair sitting there. What do they do throughout that entire hearing if they have no, the, the star witness that they wanted to get testimony from is not there? It was very brief. He made a very forceful statement admonishing McGahn for not appearing, threatening to hold him in contempt. He basically tried to argue that the White House's legal theories were totally off the mark. He's trying to dictate what Congress can and can't do in terms of investigations and oversight and vowed to take whatever action they had to do to hold the president accountable and to force witnesses to appear if they demand it. Now, the next big thing is a lot of Democrats, particularly uh, just from a lot of the reporting, Democrats on the House Judiciary Committee, 
they're calling for impeachment hearings now. They're they're pressuring Nancy Pelosi, saying we have to start this now. They are, and this is a, somewhat of a, a sign of frustration. These members have long said, look, we don't want to go down the road of impeachment until we get all the facts, but if the administration is going to stop us from getting the facts, what, what choice do we have here? With an impeachment inquiry, the, the, the House would have much more energy, I guess, or much more support in court to demand testimony and documents. It'd be a lot harder for the administration to resist that. But the speaker's not really ready to go there yet. So we're starting to see some members come out and say we need to push her to get there. There was a meeting between Nancy Pelosi and other Democratic leaders where a lot of the reports said that this came up a lot. So she's pushing Mm. back on that. How did that meeting go? What happened in there? One of the talking points you kept hearing up until now was, look, no one's really pushing back on Speaker Pelosi saying no impeachment. That changed at their leadership meeting on Monday evening when several members of the Judiciary Committee stood up and said, it's time to move. We got to do this. Pelosi did not back down. She said, look, I don't believe that the Democratic caucus is there yet. But these members are basically saying we're going to try to get them there. And we think that the, the case is already being made that Trump deserves to be impeached. She's making the political calculation. How is this going to look if we put all of our efforts in here and it goes nowhere? One of the things that everybody knows right now is the House is controlled by the Democrats. So if they do start some type of impeachment hearings, uh, maybe it could get all the way through the House, but it would almost certainly just die in the Senate. The other Democrats, as you said, frustrated with the White House's refusal to comply with any of the subpoenas. They just want to get this ball rolling. Right. And there's two couple arguments, but they say, yeah, the White House's stonewalling requires impeachment. And the moral case has already been made for getting the political case. One of the arguments that one of the members made directly to Pelosi was, look, when Nixon was impeached, the public opinion wasn't there yet either. But over the course of those investigations, it changed because of all the facts that came out. And so that's one of the arguments you're starting to hear more of from those members who really want to move forward. And if they do go with impeachment hearings, the focus would be on possible obstruction of justice and then basically refusing to comply with Congress's oversight powers. Is, is that correct? Are those are the only two things that they're going to be looking at? Essentially, yeah. It's about the House's oversight power. They want to make sure that their requests are respected and listened to, and that what they're saying is Trump's continuing to obstruct justice by not letting us investigate what Mueller already worked on. What is the public opinion about this? I think they asked Representative Ocasio-Cortez, What's going to push Nancy Pelosi over the line? She says, well, it's going to be public pressure. So where does the public stand on this? Do they have an appetite for this type of action from them? The polls have been pretty consistent that Americans don't believe Donald Trump's version of events when he talks about the Russia probe. They believe it's worthy of investigation. They don't want to go down the road of impeachment, though. There's a natural public aversion to impeachment. There's some question about whether that full enough public understanding of when the House impeaches a president, it doesn't mean he's removed from office. It actually then goes to the Senate, as you noted earlier. And so engaging on the, the public on that front could have an effect on public opinion. But right now, there just isn't that appetite out there to move in that direction. So where do we go from here? What's the next step? Is Donald McGahn going to be held in contempt? What's the next play for the Democrats? Democrats have issued new subpoenas for two more former White House aides, Hope Hicks and Annie Donaldson, who was Don McGahn's chief of staff, essentially, or deputy. That's a new front in this battle with the White House could lead to additional contempt or citations if the subpoenas aren't complied with. So they're building, Democrats are really building a case that could make it even harder for Pelosi to resist impeachment. Kyle Cheney, congressional reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.